Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, and welcome to The Bay, local news to keep you rooted. Two Bay Area men motivated by former President Donald Trump's false claims of election fraud have been sentenced to prison for their plan to blow up the headquarters of the California Democratic Party. Ian Rogers of Napa and Jared Copeland of Vallejo will face a combined 13 and a half years in federal prison. And their story is a reminder that the Bay Area is not immune to extremist violence. So today, we're playing this episode from back in May, hosted by our editor, Alan Montecilio, about the warning signs of extremism hidden in plain sight right here in the Bay. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. Julie, I'll start with you. What can you tell me about Ian Rogers? Who is he? Ian Rogers most recently lived uh, in Napa, This is Julie Small. She's a reporter with KQED. She worked on this story with fellow KQED reporter Alex Hall. He grew up in Sonoma, and he opened his own auto repair shop, British Auto Repair of the Napa Valley, about 16 years ago, and was serving clients who, uh, you know, own British cars, (laughs) Rolls-Royce, Land Rovers was his specialty. Um, He was recently married. He has a son, a teenage son, and a teenage stepson. And, um, you know, he was a larger-than-life character. He didn't really, you know, he, people who knew him knew that he liked to work out, knew that he loved guns, knew that he bought a lot of guns, liked to go shooting, liked to lift weights, you know, and that he was an avid, you know, Trump supporter, and he was very upfront about that. He didn't really make much effort to hide who he was or how he felt. And Alex, I know that auto repair shop is where Ian met Jared Copeland. Uh, Tell me a little bit about him. Jared Copeland worked as a mechanic at Ian Rogers um, Auto Repair Shop in Napa starting in 2011, and he left in late 2013 um, when he enlisted in the the Army. I talked to one family member who who knows Jared Copeland um, pretty well, um, who talked a lot about, you know, his military history, you know, just the last 10 years of his life being in the military deserting the army, being arrested for desertion, and um, eventually being discharged, receiving an other than honorable discharge. 
Copeland lived for some time with his in-laws in a three-bedroom house in North Vallejo with his wife and in-laws, then um, moved to Sacramento. Most of the people that I've talked to who know Jared Copeland use words like quiet, laid back, chill uh, to describe him. Um, A lot of people told me that, you know, he's friendly, um, but not a very outgoing person. A lot of people said that, that they saw Ian and Jared working out together at the gym, but that not a lot of people knew Jared on a deeper level in the way that it seems like they knew Ian. It seemed like he had uh, the stronger personality of the two, um, whereas Jared Copeland seemed like someone who didn't draw a ton of attention to himself. One thing that uh, Jared Copeland's cousin told me was that, um, you know, he's the kind of person that you could confide in. If you wanted to share something with him that you didn't want anyone else to know, you know, he's the kind of person that you could tell and he, and he would he would keep that secret for you. What do we know about uh, Rogers and Copeland's ties to you know, white supremacist groups or anti-government groups, things like that, before they actually plotted to bomb you know, the state Democratic Party headquarters? Were there any warning signs that we now know about? Our understanding is that Copeland, at least, that they were part of this Zone 4 or Bay Area zone of members of 3UP. Three Up is a California offshoot of the Three Percenter Movement, and Three Percenter Movement is about uh, people who believe that during the American Revolutionary War, it was only three percent of uh, the colonists who actually rose up against the British and defeated them. So that's been refuted as not factually correct, but the point is that they believe that you know they are the defenders of the United States and that they are willing to take up arms and do whatever is necessary to protect this country if they feel that that there's an invasion or even if they feel that like in this case <laughs> I would say they felt that the the election had been stolen by the Democrats. It was obvious that they had a lot of guns especially with Ian Rogers he wasn't hiding it but he was like post videos of himself firing a machine gun. So there, there were a lot of clues that were, you know, lying and you know, hiding in plain sight. So Alex, how and when did these two go from being, you know, part of this group or affiliated with this group to allegedly planning to bomb the Democratic Party headquarters in Sacramento? I know that there are also uh, text messages that are part of Uh, the court records. Was there a tipping point? Most of what the government has disclosed about their communication starts around Thanksgiving of 2020. So this is, you know, shortly after Biden is declared winner of the 2020 presidential election. They expressed a lot of outrage at the outcome of the election, the election results. You know, there's a lot of venting and complaining and criticizing um, prominent Democratic figures and just the left in general. Rogers, I think now we attack Democrats, their offices, etc. Molotov cocktails and gasoline. Um, and then as the days go on, there's more of the, the specificity of the plans. Rogers, sent link to the address of the California Democratic Party office. Copeland, 
right next to CHP. Gotta be cautious. Rogers, only takes three minutes. Take a brick, break a window, pour gas in, and light. And there's just a lot of back and forth, kind of bragging about what they could do. Rogers, scare the whole country. Can you imagine CNN covering this? I'll leave an envelope with our demands and intentions, basically saying we declare war on the Democratic Party and all traitors to the Republic. Copeland, that's some expendable stuff. Rogers, we need to send a message. Yep, I agree. Start a movement. After the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol, didn't succeed in its aim to stop the, uh, you know, um, Joe Biden from becoming the next president of the United States. And so at this point, um, they're pretty sure they want to do something. He asked Copeland, are you ready to leave your wife? Rogers, what I'm talking about, we probably will die, unfortunately. Copeland, she was crying yesterday and said to me, please don't leave me. I don't know what to do without you. She knows how I run and she knows I will put myself in harm's way for what I believe in. You know, for friends and family who doubted that these guys had it in them, I mean, I think this section speaks to me about the level of their commitment and how they saw this as their duty as patriots, that they should be willing to give up their lives. So, Julie, we have these two guys, Ian Rogers, Jared Copeland, who are talking in increasing amounts of detail, it seems, about bombing the California Democratic Party headquarters. But, you know, we also know that these two did not actually get a chance to carry out that plan. So how did they get caught? Even before they were discussing this plot, somebody who knew Ian Rogers warned the FBI about him. He said that his behavior had become increasingly explosive. He called him a maniac. He said he was deranged, maniac, you know, please arrest him. He is a danger to the public. And he sent... You know, all those publicly posted Facebook posts from, that Rogers had, you know, put online of him shooting the machine gun and posing with his guns and the different things that he said and, and warned them, like, really. And I, I spoke to the tipster, was able to figure out who he was. And, you know, he was very traumatized by his interactions with Ian Rogers. He felt that his life was at risk, that there was a point at which Ian became so frustrated politically that he kept, you know, threatening out loud, I'm going to kill somebody, I'm going to kill somebody. So um, somebody who knows Ian Rogers sees this behavior. What did law enforcement do once they heard about this? What happened was they stopped Ian um, Rogers at a traffic stop. Then they served him with search warrants for his home and for his business. Um, And there they found a safe. And in the safe, they found guns and they found five pipe bombs, you know, brick-sized pipe bombs that were, like, ready to go that could have destroyed the whole building. They found a Nazi flag in that in, in the safe, and they found um, Nazi paraphernalia and books, lots of books about how to make your own explosives. Went to his house. They found more guns. They found guns, you know, sitting out in the open, loaded. They found guns. He had kept guns in his uh, RV as well. So by the end of the day, they had like, about 50 guns that they had collected. Many of them were illegal, illegally modified to become automatic or just flat out illegal machine guns. Ian Rogers was arrested on January 15th, 2021 for uh, illegal possession of guns um, and illegal possession of explosive devices. 
also conspiracy to destroy a building. They had the evidence right there in hand. Alex, do we know how law enforcement connected uh, Ian Rogers to Jared Copeland? Because I know Jared Copeland was arrested later, right? So we know that when the FBI and Napa County sheriffs searched Rogers' business and home, that they found the record of these conversations that he had had with Copeland. It's not entirely clear why they waited six months to arrest Copeland. According to the court records, the day after Rogers was arrested, a friend texted Copeland an article about his arrest, and Copeland replied, do you think they look at our texts because we talked about some stuff. And so Copeland is also charged with conspiracy to destroy by fire or explosive, a building used in interstate commerce. And he's also facing a destruction of records and official proceedings charge for allegedly destroying evidence of his communication with Rogers. Julie, I want to move on to the some of the context of this. Uh, what do we know about the increase in, in domestic extremism, especially as it relates to, you know, white supremacist groups, anti-government groups. Um, what do we know about that? We know from the U.S. Department of Justice that the number of FBI investigations into suspected domestic violent extremists has more than doubled since the spring of 2020. We are seeing an increase in both the level of violence and the number of individual actors uh, since the summer of 2020. In California or just throughout the country? Both. So we spoke to uh, the special agent in charge of counterterrorism in the San Francisco field office of the FBI. And that agent's name is John Blair. There are people who are, are looking left and right and realizing that this is not necessarily the world we want to live in. They think they're getting more tips because not because more is going on necessarily, although that might be true too, but also because more people are, are taking it seriously and saying, hey, I overheard this thing and then reporting it. From individuals who happen to be near people who are spewing the ideology and taking steps towards those violent acts, uh, saying, no, not, not here, not on my turf, not around me. So... I know you both talked with many people, uh, both on and off the record, who know Ian Rogers and Jared Copeland. What do they make of the fact that they have been arrested and are now facing some very serious uh, charges? Alex, I'll, I'll start with you on this. I think every person that I talked to was very surprised that Jared Copeland um, is facing these charges and is in federal custody. It just didn't sound like him. You know, I, I spoke with his cousin, Novice Dublin, in Mayfield, Kentucky, um, where uh, Jared Copeland is from, and he just said that, you know, he wasn't the kind of kid growing up who was, you know, seemed like there were early signs of violence by any means. I mean, growing up, he wasn't the one that was out hunting and fishing and trying to figure out how to take 30 firecrackers to a pop bottle and make it blow up. That was the rest of it. You know, another individual that I spoke with um, was Jagra too. Um, he's the owner of Audio House in Napa, and he used to work out at the same gym as them and would see them lifting weights together and, you know, spotting each other and said, you know, they seem like really good friends. And he would talk to them. He's Indian. And he said that um, he never 
got the impression that Rogers or Copeland were racist in any way, that they treated him like any any old guy is how he described it. And um, he was just completely shocked that authorities found, you know, some of the Nazi paraphernalia, some of this other stuff at Rogers' business. And Julie, I know you spoke with Ian Rogers' wife. What, what did she say? Ian Rogers' wife is Yulia Rogers. Everybody who knows him, his family and his friends, they know what it's man it is. He never was like mean or trying to do something bad to another people. She said, you know, if I read all the things that have been written about my husband, I, I too might think he was a bad guy. That, you know, this focus on all these weapons, he's been collecting them for 20 years. That it was his passion and his hobby, but not that he was about to go out and use all that stuff. It's just ridiculous for me <laughs> because I knew him and I know that he, he never was going to do it. He, she just thinks, you know, he, you know, he sometimes drank and uh, he probably texted his friends when he was drunk and wrote some stupid stuff, but he was never going to do it. Another person I spoke to was somebody who knew that Ian Rogers pretty well over a decade and had socialized with him and had a business relationship with him. And he didn't really know about the details of the text messages. So he was basically going on what he did know, which was his relationship with this person, you know, as being like, he's a great guy. He's a stand up guy in the community. You know, he has got this. He has so much to lose. He had a great business. He was doing well. He had a new wife. He had his kids. But then when I pushed and said, well, did you read the text messages that were sent? He he hadn't. And he didn't want to, you know, that's the sense that I got. Uh, he and another, and also uh, uh, Ian Rogers' wife both chalked it up to a drunken rant. And that has been also the defense that Ian Rogers himself has said uh, was just drunk. It was just drunken banter, but, you know, um, they're not ready to even think of them that way. We're talking about this in a context where domestic extremism, white supremacist extremism, um, anti-government extremism is, um, you know, on the rise in, in America. How are you thinking about this story just in the context of, of, you know, all these things that are going on? You know, how how does this tie into the, the story in Buffalo, but also just this, this, bigger, this bigger picture? Um, Alex, can I start with you on that? It made me think of something that John Blair told us um, when we spoke with him, which is that whenever an attack takes place, it's because the FBI or society in combination with the FBI uh, failed to prevent it. Um, And so I think it points to this really interesting spot that um, federal investigators, federal prosecutors are in right now where, you know, we're coming off of... um, a little more than a year after the January 6th insurrection. Obviously, this is at top of mind for a lot of people. Um, The FBI said that they have more than doubled their caseload of investigations into domestic violent extremists since spring of 2020. And there's obviously a lot of pressure to make sure that attacks like this don't happen. But of course, they're in this really interesting um, legal territory where, you know, you have to respect people's constitutionally protected rights to voice their opinions. And there's just a lot of 
um, tricky territory to navigate um, for the FBI um, publicly and also in these investigations that they're carrying out that we don't really know a lot about until something either does happen or um, a plot is foiled, like in the case of Rogers and Copeland. It's just really, I don't know, it's it's hard. You know, white supremacy and domestic extremism are here in the Bay Area as, as you know, in the you know, air quotes, liberal Bay Area, you know, as well. well. Sometimes people are telling us they're racist, they're <laughs> violent, and we should listen to them when they put it out there like that. And this is prevalent. This is not new. And you go a little bit outside the Bay Area and you're going to find this is dominant in people's thinking. There's a dominant way of looking at the world. Julie, Alex, thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to Julie Small and Alex Hall, reporters for KQED. This conversation was cut down by Erica Cruz Guevara. Maria Esquinka added the audio and the music. The voiceovers you heard were by Paul Lancor and Dan Brecky. The Bay is a production of KQED Public Media in San Francisco. I'm Alan Monticilio. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair, available wherever you get your podcasts. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis. From KQED Podcasts comes On Our Watch Season 2, New Folsom. A story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.